Hi all, my name is Joe, and I like to talk about world events off the beaten track. Covid, Trump and Brexit will appear only where strictly necessary, and I hope you'll enjoy hearing about some things that most news organisations skip over. I would just like to say that the kickball is still going on, so uh, I hope whoever's listening that your favourite team won. Uh, we'll see how that goes. And no, I am not doing a 5WH on the Euros. So, for those new to the pod, uh, 5WH uh, focuses on a global event by asking the classic questions of who, what, why, when, where, and how, in whichever order best suits the topic, with the aim of giving you a bottom line upfront of what's going on in the world and providing you with some sort of guide rails if you wanted to go digging a bit further yourself. If I'm also entirely honest, the guidelines are there to stop me going off on too much of a ramble. So today we're going to be looking at an event that was juicy enough to make me want to end my hiatus, because it's got all the things we here at 5WH like. We have a small country, check. Potential tropical paradise, check. Persistent political and economic instability, check. A sudden burst of unexpected uh, violence or chaos or a coup, something like that, big check, lots of check. And the opportunity for a poor quality alliterative episode title, check. Today we're going to be looking at the assassination of the Haitian President Mose. Welcome to Havoc in Haiti. So we're going to jump straight in with our who. Unsurprisingly, with a presidential assassination, the per first person we need to look at is the President of Haiti. As a, and I apologise for my pronunciation here, Jovenel Moise. He's been in office for four years, having been elected sort of twice in 2015-2016, and we'll talk about that later. We've also, he's married uh, with a with three children. Uh, his wife was also wounded in the assassination and has been recuperating in Florida since the attack. And all three of his children are reported to be alive, despite at least two of them having been present in his home when the attack took place. We've also now got the acting Prime Minister, Mr. Joseph. He's the sixth Prime Minister appointed during Mose's four-year term. And also, you know, the man who's taken over the country in the president's stead. As an additional character or person of interest, we've got the sort of, I, I guess, nominal Prime Minister. He hasn't really got a title. Um, Mr. Henry was named to be Mr. Moise's seventh Prime Minister the day before the murder took place, but was not yet sworn in. As such, we can see a little bit of tension going on between uh, Mr. Joseph and Mr. Henry at the moment, although it does seem that Mr. Joseph has secured power, at least, in the interim. And more, and you know, having run through the sort of key political actors, we've also got to look at the people who did the shooting. In this case, we've got an unknown mercenary group. So this stands out to me a little bit uh, as a bit different from your sort of run-of-the-mill political trouble where you get, like, uh, say, Ronald Reagan, someone stepped out from a crowd and took a shot at him. Um, JFK, obviously, uh, Lee Harvey Oswald, sniper in the, in the library tower. You know, being head of state comes with an inherent risk that someone's going to try and take a pop at you, it's quite unusual that we wind up with something quite like this. So, to date, our current standard of knowledge is that 28 members of an unidentified, air quotes, mercenary, close air quotes, group, were responsible for the assassination of President Mose. They were heavily armed and equipped with automatic rifles, body armour vests, the sort of general paramilitary equipment you'd expect to see on, you know any American TV show. Think Narcos. Think Sicarios from Narcos. Um, again, bad pronunciation. Uh, indeed, actually, 
taking on from the Narcos sort of theme. Uh, a bunch of these mercenaries actually attempted to masquerade as DEA, that is American Drug Enforcement Agents, during their escape. There's video footage uh, of the mercenaries in contact with the police shouting that this was a DEA operation and that everyone should stand down. That clearly didn't work too well. Um, and it appears that one of the people shouting this claim to be DEA were one of two US nationals that were arrested uh, after the attack, uh, James Solanges and Joseph Vincent, both reportedly of Haitian descent, although that again may be clarified later. The remainder of the attackers, aside from the two Americans, were reported as being Colombians, um, and official Haitian sources describing them having a good degree of training as well as equipment, which I assume to have been assessed by their behaviour under fire. The suggestion being here that they're either um, ex-cartel hitters or possibly ex-Columbian military. Again, no suggestion here that there's a nation-state behind this, but you know we're not talking about a bunch of bunch of thugs with baseball bats here. We're talking about some quite highly trained and motivated individuals conducting the attack. So the only person that I've managed to find much information on from this mercenary group was the aforementioned James Solanges, or Solanges, again, your shout at the pronunciation. And he seems to be a bit of a character. He's a 35-year-old who runs a... or ran, I'm assuming he's not running anything at the moment, um, ran a, a construction business in Port-au-Prince, Haiti's capital, and also had a key role in heading a charity aimed at child welfare in one of the city's more impoverished neighbourhoods. He has, however, had some limited experience in the security sector, which is not necessarily uncommon. Uh, there's a bit of crossover, even in the UK, between private contracts and security and you know people doing a bit of construction work on the side. Um, however, in this case, he was contracted as a, quote, reserve bodyguard by a private company which serviced the Canadian embassy in Haiti in around about 2010. Um, in contrast to his actual title as a reserve bodyguard, Solange's LinkedIn profile lists his skills as military police and one of his ex-job titles as chief commander of bodyguards for the Canadian embassy in Haiti. Honestly, he seems like a bit of a Haitian Walter Mitty at this point, and um, it's actually kind of a miracle that a person with this sort of slightly inflated ego managed to pull off something like this. Although, that said, I may be being unfair, It's there's no indication that Solange's or the other American, Mr. Vincent, were actually in any way providing the leadership for this attack. Their reports to police have allegedly been that they were translators for the assassins rather than members of the actual hit team, um, and they have further claimed that they believed the operation had been intended to arrest the president and was supported by some sort of judicial sign-off. Um, all I have to say at this point is, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I invite you to draw your own conclusions. Doesn't seem particularly watertight to me. So now we're going to roll on to our what, and this, I mean, although it's been a few days now, the attack happened uh, Wednesday last week, you know, this is still breaking news, and it's leading to political chaos throughout the country, so, you know, expect this to change. But anyway, so, up front, the president was shot in his personal residence, located in the hills above Port-au-Prince. Uh, the gunmen appear to have gained access to his residence without raising an alarm, or at least not raising it until it was too late, as the president was found shot dead on his back in his bedroom, um, reportedly at least 12 bullets inside his body. During the scuffle and the mercenaries' attempt to get away, the president's wife was also wounded, and at least four people, a mixture of guards and domestic staff, were taken hostage 
as the attackers attempted to cover their escape. It does appear that all, all of those other sort of hostages were freed unharmed, um, although again, I expect more of this will come out in the press as things go along. As we've alluded to before, uh, during the escape, there is a vid there is video footage of the mercenaries attempting to uh, basically brazen their way out of a confrontation with the Haitian police by shouting their DEA. Um, they're not, or at least, you know, there's no reason to believe they were. Uh, but it does say something possibly about the state of Haiti that, you know, claiming to be a, you know, a serviceman or a, an operator for a foreign intelligence information gathering service would be considered a get out of jail free card potentially like i would like to think that if in britain you know someone jumped out of a, a crowd having just shot someone and shouted don't worry i'm at the fbi that we'd arrest them anyway like it baffles me they even thought this would work uh, i think it probably says quite a lot about um u.s penetration into latin america or the caribbean in this case the narco the narco lines between from, between South America and the U.S. Clearly, though, that um, the Haitian police were as suspicious of that uh, story as I was, uh, and the res there was a resulting fairly protracted gun battle with at least twenty-eight of the gunmen now being reported either killed or captured. Since the attack, Mr. Joseph, the acting or sorry, the Prime Minister, soon to be departing Prime Minister has announced that he's taken control of the government and declared a state of siege, uh, which has allowed him to implement a series of other emergency powers, including restricting border access, streamlining government a little bit, um, generally uh, allowing him to use the army to conduct police actions and other, other functions. That, the sort of functions you'd expect, frankly, to happen if someone screams state of emergency loudly. Um, it also appears that he has been supported in this by the military and police leadership, which appears to have prevented any uh, confusion or tension that may have happened as there was as i said earlier a prime minister in office and also a nominal one waiting to step in it, it looks like the uh, the institutional weight of the army and police falling in behind mr joseph seemed to have cemented him there at least temporarily we've also and, and the importance of these uh, states of emergency sort of regulations can be indicated by the trouble that's been going on in port-au-prince since um there's been at least limited violent unrest. The police station that the, the locals, you know, believed that the attacks were being held in was surrounded by a mob that not only attempted to gain access to the police station, assumedly to do some harm to the attackers, they also set fire to a series of vehicles outside the police station which they believed had belonged to them. Um, at the moment, things seem to have been tamped down a little bit. Uh, PM Joseph uh, went out, asked the crowd to uh, sort of calm down and also requested they stop destroying evidence, um, i.e. the vehicles they set on fire. Again, I'm not sure how much this is a bit of a sticking plaster of a gunshot wound. Haiti is known to frequently have instances of political unrest and you know, I I'd be lying if I said I didn't expect that this may escalate further. It has potential to. So now we've covered the sort of the key headlines, who and what's happened. I think it's important that we try and figure out exactly where Haiti is. Um, because as normal, I try not to assume any knowledge for listeners of the podcast, and we'll just give you a quick uh, briefing as to where we're going. So, Haiti. It's a relatively small state, which makes up the western half of the island of Hispaniola in the Caribbean. It's home to between 11.5 and 12 million people, and it shares its only land border with the Dominican Republic to its east. 
Otherwise, the island is pretty much dead centre of the Caribbean island chain, with Jamaica and Cuba to its west, the US territory of Puerto Rico to the east, and it's almost exactly due north of Colombia. To give a bit of sort of scale of time and distance to this, the flight from Miami in the US state of Florida to Haiti's capital is two hours, five minutes. Beaming in on the you know, the tableau for today's drama. Haiti's capital is Port-au-Prince, as, as I've named, dropped a few times earlier. And the surrounding area of Port-au-Prince is where this actually took place. Port-au-Prince is located at the base of a sort of bay within a bay that makes up the entirety of Haiti's west coast. It's flanked to its north and south by significant ranges of hills and to its east by a lake called Lake Azai. As a result, any future expansion of the city would be limited by this geography, but at the moment, satellite imagery suggests that the city is not particularly dense. Uh, there's sufficient space for development. Uh, President Moise's personal residence is located in a neighbourhood called Pellerin 5, uh, which is in itself contained within a affluent area of the south of the city called Petionville. So, so far you'd be thinking, as I said in the introduction, we've got Idyllic Caribbean island paradise, nice city, some scenic hills, lakes, coastline. Sounds pretty good. Um, problem is, Haiti has a lot of trouble capitalising on its potential as a tropical paradise due to being smack bang in the line of fire for a pretty troubling array of natural disasters. We'll start with the most significant one first. Uh, Haiti sits on a confluence of major tectonic fault lines and therefore suffers frequent earthquakes. I mean, a magnitude 3 earthquake happened less than a week ago, um, and this is, you know, a pretty recurring theme. More significant than the, frankly, paltry magnitude 3, though, was the catastrophic magnitude 7 quake, which hit the country in 2010. The epicentre of this quake was actually, by coincidence, not far away from President Moise's home in Port-au-Prince. This quake was then followed by at least 52 aftershocks, of, you know, sufficient enough magnitude to cause trouble, and resulted in the deaths of an unknown number of Haitians. Estimates vary between the conservative and still terrifying 100,000, up to the Haitian government's maximal estimate of about 316,000. In addition to this absolutely horrific human toll, uh, official estimates suggest that a quarter of a million homes were destroyed, as well as at least 30,000 commercial, commercial premises. In addition, though, to the absolute mountain of human misery, and possibly of more significance to what we're looking at today, is that the earthquake decimated Haiti's major physical infrastructure. Uh, in particular, the earthquake flattened all of Port-au-Prince's hospitals, it cracked and uh, laid waste to the major highways, it closed the airport and destroyed the port facilities, um, as well as most of the municipal government buildings in the capital. As, and again, and it go, the list just goes on, I keep trying to end it, uh, as well as also wiping out the power and communication networks within the capital. This has had a series of effects. Obviously, in the immediate aftermath of the earthquake, it seriously hampered any response and contributed significantly to that vast death toll. But it also has led to a situation where Haiti, 11 years later, has not actually come close to repairing that damage and restoring the sort of standard of living that was you know, in existence 11 years ago. The most recent statistics I've found suggest that close to a quarter of the entire population remains in need of humanitarian assistance, and at least 50,000 people are still living in improvised like aid camps. Even those who have returned to or established new homes are reported as living in conditions 
in a worse state than they were prior to the 2010 quake. Not satisfied with one sort of disaster, Haiti also has the misfortune to be afflicted by tropical storms as a part of the sort of annual weather cycles that go through the Caribbean. While these pale in significance next to the devastation of the uh, 2010 earthquake, named storms strike the island frequently enough to cause significant disturbance. Uh, most recently, uh, this was Storm Laura, which struck Haiti in 2020, causing at least 31 deaths. And although with the earthquake, we've got a massive death toll and massive infrastructural damage, you've also got to consider that for every one of these storms, the flooding, the rain, the landslides, there's a significant ongoing impact to the state of, you know, the society, the community that gets struck by these events. Um, and it definitely seems to have led to a, led to Haiti having a, somewhat fragile existence. Cumulatively, these storms and earthquakes have basically formed a vicious circle in conjunction with Haiti's poverty. It's currently the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. The state, correspondingly, is chronically underfunded and unable to make the investments necessary to address the welfare of its people, both in response to these significant one-off catastrophes and also, frankly, in providing the baseline level of services that you know, anyone would expect, well, any Westerner would expect their state to provide. So now we've painted a bit of a picture. We've got, uh, you know, densely populated, bustling city in a country that's, you know, while idyllic in some respects, is deeply troubled. Um, and we know that the president was shot. So when and how did this happen? Well, the attack happened at approximately 1 a.m., local time, on Wednesday the 11th of July, uh, July 2021. Initial reports made it sound like a protracted gun battle uh, occurred sort of during and after the attack, uh, but more recent reporting suggests that this wasn't quite quite the case, with reporting possibly getting confused by the fog of war inevitable in, in such a confusing turn of events. Reporting as of uh, Friday in the UK made reference to 28 arrests, and it can be inferred that several suspects remained at large for at least 48 hours after the attacks, as the reports the day before reported only about 20 arrests. So you can see, uh, you know, they weren't sort of surrounded and uh, mopped up in one go. This seems to have been a... There has been a protracted manhunt throughout the city uh, since the attack took place. In terms of the details of the how, again, the order remains confused, but basically we're talking about 28 blokes in 4x4s rock up outside the President's Palace and seems that they basically sauntered in um we can ask a lot of questions as to how they gained that access and how no one noticed 28 men with machine guns walking into the presidential residence without shooting at them first um those questions will follow i'm not entirely sure we have answers to that yet so now though we get to ask what is possibly the more important question and i have no idea if i'm going to be able to provide you with an adequate answer for this but to me, the most important question is, why did someone front the non-trivial amount of money, time and effort, to send a platoon-strength gang of mercenaries to assassinate, or, if you believe the translate, uh, interpreter's story, to detain the Haitian president? What made them think that the most Tom Clancy approach to this possible was necessary? Well, to look at that, we're going to have to look at Haiti's political system and the, the state of those politics a little bit more broadly. As mentioned earlier, Haiti is far from affluent. 
it has significant misfortune regard to natural disasters over the past decade or so, and regular listeners may have noticed that poverty is rarely conducive to political stability. Haiti is no exception to this rule. Indeed, you could argue that President Moise's career so far is actually a, a pretty good uh, standalone example of, you know, impoverished nations and corruption going hand in hand. So President Moise sought the presidency originally in the election scheduled for 2015. He received an endorsement from the then incumbent president, Martelli, and ran on a platform favouring universal education and healthcare, reform to the energy and agricultural sectors, which is particularly important as 50% of Haiti's population are, you know, agricultural labourers, basically. Um, and also on a platform where he um, professed support for the concept of the rule of law. However, inside, in spite of this platform that would seem positive by most objective measures, the actions behind this gave lie to it. In the first round of the election, exit polls suggested that only about 6% of voters actually cast their ballot for Moise. However, the official count gave him 34% of the vote. Uh, this disparity is probably a bit more than, you know, oh, you know, exit polls aren't exactly right. You know, the sort of, oh, it's a tooth and claw election that's going to come down to the, come down to the, um, come down to the line. I mean, Christ, that's, that's a, an error margin of 28%. E even the, uh, even the US pollsters in 2016 weren't that far off. And, you know, as you, as you'd hope, I guess, hell hath no fury like an electorate scorned. Well, most of the time. And these allegations led to widespread protests throughout the country. This created uh, sufficient pressure that Martelli, the outgoing president, declared the election void and appointed an interim president to act from the end of Martelli's term until another election could be arranged. This second election was held in late 2016, a year after the original, and returned a first-round victory to President Moise with about 55% of the vote, utterly thrashing the other 26 candidates. And let's just dial that back for a second. 55% victory with 26 candidates in the race. That that's uh, We think the recent New York election has been chaotic, but I think this, uh, this probably gives it some uh, run for its money. Anyway, I've seen no stories relating to allegations of fraud around this uh, rerun special election, but I've also seen no evidence to suggest that Moise managed to wash the stain of corruption off of him. So really haven't really haven't got too much of a comment to make on this one uh, but it but this double election system with the interim government has led to a series of tensions which have come to a head in the last six months so interim government so the the haitian presidency is a five-year term moise claimed to have won the first round of voting in 2015 and would therefore argue he would have won the next round and should have become president in very early 2016. His five-year term should therefore run from February 2016 to February 2021. So far, so fine. Uh, measured from the date that President Martelli was due to stand down. However, Moise's opinion is that his five-year term should actually be counted from his first day in post, i.e., after the year of the interim government, and therefore his term does not actually end until February-ish 2022. He's therefore basically rolled through his term limit. The term limits of the elected legislature have expired, and because 
Moise is resisting the new election. No elections have been sought to replace them. So since the legislature stood down in 2019, let me get this right, 2019, I think, President Moise, or start of 2020, President Moise has been ruling by diktat. So even if you sort of understand his argument that, okay, fine, you lost a year of your election, you lost a year of your term to political shenanigans and trouble, he's conveniently failed to make any allowance for the the parliament essentially to be replaced in his, uh, while, you know, conducting his sole rule. This is generally deemed to be a bad sign. Now, this has been worsened by some of the actions that Moise has taken uh, during his term. So he's openly of the opinion that the Haitian state and, and its constitution requires radical reform. In common with all would-be reformers and all potential tyrants, his public justification for these amendments was to provide a, quote, system that works for the Haitian people, with a particular focus on addressing what Moise views as a weakness in the constitution, in that the presidency is not sufficiently empowered to deliver on any president's platform. He particularly takes issue with the way that the Haitian system results in the election of both a prime minister and a president. Um, I'm sure most people recognise that generally you have a president who might have a speaker of the house or whatever in the legislature, or you have a prime minister who generally has a, a more notional head of state. It's quite unusual to see a country that has both like an executive functioning presidency and a and a prime minister role, sort of in opposition to each other. Um, and you know th this is reported and this is not disagreed that this system does seem to create a significant amount of friction and it does lead to two competing senses of power. However, on the flip side. This is argued to be necessary, as Haiti uh, only managed to throw off the Devalier dictatorship in 1987, and it's strongly argued that the intent of the constitution creating these dual um, dual power centres is a bit like the, the twin consuls in ancient Rome, or the two kings in Sparta, or the, oh Christ, name me whichever examples you like. The entire point was to have two competing centres of power so that power never rested in one man. It's your choice whether you, uh, you know, having read anything about ancient Rome, whether you think that worked very well. Um, but, you know, by this argument, these frictions are, are a feature, not a bug. Um, kind of see Moise's point, though, because these frictions, this, this alleged feature of the Constitution, has led to him sacking seven PMs in his four-ish years in power. So, you, yeah, I'll, I'll let you judge how well that went. Um, so what were Moise's proposed changes. He wasn't just like, I want to make this streamlined. He did have suggestions. And the the broad strokes of these were that he wanted to bin one of the legislative houses, switching it from a bicameral to a unicameral system with all the representatives on five-year terms, and wanted to replace the prime minister with a vice presidency, a bit like the US, directly subservient to the president. Although I believe in this case that vice president would have acted essentially as a sort of speaker of the house slash prime minister. But rather than being in opposition to the presidency they would have been directly, um, you know, directly integrated with, with the administration. Uh, the, these reforms were, shall we say, frowned upon by the United States, 
whose support is essential to the operation of the Haitian state, and therefore those reforms have not been implemented. That said, although those reforms were not complete by the time Mosé was killed, he had been ruling by diktat for over a year, with legislators' terms having ended in 2020, um, and, and no elections having been taken place to, re to replace them. This understandably proved unpopular both amongst the political classes and indeed apparently among the people. Uh, political unrest and violence became another norm in Haiti to accompany the significant uh, quantities of violent crime and the aforementioned natural disasters and general trouble. However, this increased unrest seems to have provided Mose with a cover to act in a more authoritarian manner. He uh, took measures to uh, secure borders, uh, you know, basically he took a lot of actions to centralise power into the presidency, as, you, as you'd expect, um, and also established a new secret police which was intended to report directly to him. Now, I don't think anyone has the time really to go much further into the intricacies of Haitian politics, and I think we're going to have to leave a lot more questions hanging in the air, but I think what we can say with certainty is that the actions Moise's taken through his term are strongly suggestive of someone acting in a manner that you would call tyrannical. Um, you know, I, I think we could argue very strongly here that although we don't know who paid the gunman, who had the motive specifically to kill him, there were a lot of people that might have wanted him gone. You could see this bluntly as a Haitian repetition of the murder of Julius Caesar, Unlike Shakespeare's Caesar, however, we don't know into whose eyes Moise looked before he died and asked, Et tu? Okay, guys and girls, thank you very much for listening. I hope you've enjoyed taking a bit of a, a shallow surface level dive into Haiti with me, and I hope you've got as many extra questions as I have, because this is fascinating and we have not got enough time. If you've enjoyed it, I would love it if you could hit follow or subscribe on whatever platform you're using. You can also join me on Facebook or Instagram just by searching 5WH. I would also appreciate any comments or feedback you've got. This is a young pod I am looking to improve and I'm looking to get back in the saddle of producing this more often. Otherwise, thank you all and I hope to see you soon.